You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. You're tuned into another convalescent episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Chad Dundas from ESPN.com, and along for the ride, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's your other co-host, Ben Folks. Ben, how are you doing? You know damn well how I'm doing. Yeah, you don't look great. Yeah. I wonder why that is. I wonder if it could be because Chad Dundas comes over here with his, his sickly germs for everything, with his unmarked box of cough drops. Uh, you know, putting his diseased hands all over my stuff. Then he leaves, and uh, lo and behold, a couple days later, I come down with some kind of super cold. How about that? Well, I, in my own defense, I will say that, that the multiple times I did come over while I was sick, and it was a lot, uh, <laughs> I, I checked to make sure it was okay first. You know, my wife and I came over for election night. Uh, I think I came over at some other, oh, writer's group. I was over here for our writer's group. And uh, then did you happen to just maybe like lick all the spoons, take the spoons out of yeah, the drawer I, and lick them all before you put I them back breathed, in? I just breathed into all the cups. Yeah. Went through and just. <sighs> I think what made it worse is that first this thing went through your supercharged immune system, uh, which forced it to get stronger. Mm-hmm. And then you pass it on to me and it, it is just attacked with a vengeance. Yeah, I feel fine, by the way. Good. I'm doing great. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, 100%, I would say. Yeah. That's reassuring. Have you been using the Zycam, though? Oh, I've been Zycamming it up. Well, good. Then I expect you'll probably be, uh, probably be over it here in a couple of days. No, I'm, I'm feeling much better. I spent the, the weekend feeling like my head was going to explode. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've turned a corner, and now I can just focus on being angry at you. Well, so business as usual, yeah, then, is more what you're less. trying to say. Uh, this week's co-main event podcast will be in three rounds. In round number one, the UFC made its first trip to Macau. Macau! This past weekend, that's in the books, but did it make a sound? Macau! In that round, sound? <laughs> aside from that sound, okay. which it has been making ad nauseum. Macau! Uh, round number two, so saith TMZ, that the upcoming Strike Force show in January will be that organization's last. We'll discuss the many future ramifications thereof. And in round three, it's fight week. Did you notice? UFC 154 is this weekend featuring the return of George St. Pierre. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, as always, like we always do about this time, listener mail. Listener mail. This week's first piece of listener mail comes to us from Tony G. Who asks? Yeah, it makes him sound like a member of Bell Biv DeVoe or something. Yeah, like a smooth jazz artist. Uh, Do you think that the hackneyed phrase, quote, steel sharpens steel, unquote, is a big reason for the success of so many different affiliated, so many different fighters affiliated with camps like AKA Black House, Jackson Winklejohn, ATT, Caesar Gracie, etc. And simultaneously, the reason why legends who are who are their camps, such as BJ Penn, Tito Ortiz and Fedor, aren't or weren't as competitive at the end of their careers. Well, in fairness, we should note that you named BJ Penn, Tito Ortiz, and Fedor some dudes who kind of just got old. I mean, you can make a case, uh, particularly I think with BJ Penn, that he was a little allowed to become a little bit too much the boss of his own training camp, which works better for some people than it does for others. But yeah, I mean, you could kind of name anybody towards the end of their training camp or toward the, toward the end of their career and be like, 
Oh, hey, look, this guy seems to be on a downward slope. What does that prove about his methods of training? Not necessarily anything. But as far as the steel sharpens steel thing, I think, you know, there's two different theories there. One is that the success of some of those camps mentioned, like AKA, Black House, Jackson, Winklejohn, those are all camps with a bunch of dudes. I mean, a bunch of good dudes who are helping each other become better. But anytime you have just a whole bunch of fighters and then that gym becomes a magnet to pull in other fighters, as, as Jackson Winklejohn's in, in Albuquerque has, then yeah, you're going to have some, some good guys out of there. I also, though, think that a gym like AKA has the problem where because it's so many good guys on the floor beating the hell out of each other, that's part of why we see so many injuries. Yeah, the guy that I would throw out as an example of the, uh, I guess, the cautionary examples that Tony G uses at the end would be Brock Lesnar. Because Lesnar was a guy who, when he came into the UFC, he already had sort of a gargantuan task in front of him because he was, you know, he was jumping into the deep end of the pool in his early 30s. And he was a guy who didn't have this this previous fighting experience that that, you know almost everyone at this level has now, you know, in the early days of the UFC, UFC 12 or whatever, you could probably, you know, jump right, right into the octagon as a national champion NCAA wrestler even and be with, fine. Even without gargantuan fighting experience. You said that weird. Did I? Yeah. Gargantuan. Is that how you say it? I think I said gargantuan task. <laughs> okay, what whatever. Gargantuan. Wait, how do you say it? Gargantuan. That's how I just said it. Gargantuan. <laughs> Go on. Go, what was your point you were making? Well, I was going to say Lesnar didn't do himself any favors with this sizable task already in front of him <laughs> uh, by, by creating his own gym in his hometown uh, of Alexandria, Minnesota, and sort of hand-selecting all of, all of his training partners. Right. Um, you know, he brought in a bunch of guys who, who were essentially good at the same thing he was good at. Well, I mean, it, he brought in, like, Pat Berry. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, he, you know, the one sort of nod that he made to try to pick up the striking game was to bring in Pat Berry. But, I mean, I think if he, was, if he were really serious about steel sharpening steel, he, he might have, you know, gone the extra mile to sort of travel around and, uh, and, and visit all these other camps and be exposed to some different experiences and different coaches and guys who might have pushed him in areas that – he was not particularly advanced in. Well, and also the thing about Brock Lesnar's camp, and you definitely got this impression in talking to Pat Barry about it, to what extent you could. I mean, he had to sign, like, uh, agreements saying that he would not talk uh, to the media about Brock Lesnar's yeah, camp. Yeah, Brock Lesnar doesn't want anybody to know about all of this super secret, yeah. super smart shit he's doing, <laughs> I'm sure. Step one, be really huge and awesome. Uh, but, you know, when you bring in guys where it's kind of clear, like, hey, you're a paid sparring partner, and we're going to bring you in and have you live here and, you know, throw some kicks at the guy's head to help him out. That just has a different feel than we're teammates all helping each other. Then it's, it's more like a job. And you're going to do enough to fulfill the requirements of the job. But, you know, if Pat Berry thinks that, hey, I go out there really trying to kick the shit out of Brock Lesnar and maybe I make him mad. And then when we're, it's wrestling practice time, he breaks my ribs. Uh, maybe that's not the best idea for me here, you know. It's it's a different kind of feel when it's clearly Brock Lesnar's gym as opposed to a gym that we all have a kind of equal stake in. And as soon as you see that scary, like, dead Viking painted up on the wall, then you know it's Brock Lesnar's gym. Like, there's yeah. nobody else who whose it could be. Yeah, yeah. You're not walking in there and being like, oh, is this, is this Kyle Kingsbury's place? <laughs> <laughs> Question number two this week comes from Seth Bacon. Uh he asks, Dana White recently went on another tirade about state-appointed judges, this time blowing decisions on tough. And man, editor's note, the decisions on tough have been fucking terrible this year. <laughs> I'll take your word for anyway, it. Anyway, back to Seth Bacon. 
The well-worn depiction of the judges as a lowest common denominator fan more focused on bloodshed and being on top than the nuances of submission attempts and intelligent fighting is getting old. It seems after fearing, quote, the hands of the judges, unquote, for more than a decade, there would be a few retired fighters who have stepped into the positions to make things right. Is the judging pool an old boys club of boxing-centric vets and state politics? Is it not feasible for an ex-UFC fighter to pick up judging gigs on the side of running their own gym? Is judging just a lot harder than armchair warriors want to believe? Right now, we're getting. Right now, we are getting the best decision. Right now, are we getting the best decision that three odd angles and isolated points of view can offer? And do you think instant replay and/or monitors for the judges would assist? That's a lot of questions. It is a lot actually. of questions. Um, you know, it it is sort of a vexing question about why the the judging in this sport remains so, so unbelievably terrible. And we have discussed it on the podcast in the past, I believe even looking up the rules on the UFC webpage, which are also terrible. Yeah. And it seems out of necessity, sort of unilaterally ignored by everyone who judges a fight. Um, the one thing that I would say about this assumption that everyone makes that getting former fighters to come in and be judges. I'm not sure that that is such a quick and easy fix as, as everyone thinks it is. It might be better. I mean, anytime it's starting to happen. Yeah. You saw Ricardo Almeida, Ricardo is, Almeida. is a judge. Matt Hughes is, is saying some stuff. Are you serious? Matt Hughes is going to be a judge. Uh, I don't think he said that he actually wants to become a judge. I think he talked about running some kind of judges Academy or something. I mean, the kind of thing where he, he wants to help out, but not really do that much. Right. Well, you know. let's let's talk about Matthews. Let's say Matthews did want to become a judge and this, you know, not to not to like uh, to accuse Matthews of anything. But I would say that like one of the problems that you would have when you take these former fighters and try to transition them into these judging positions is that these guys are going to come in with their own biases. Yeah. You know what I mean? Not being I mean, just being a, a professional fighter doesn't necessarily make you any better of a judge than anyone else. Yeah. I mean, I think Matthews is one of the judges. You pick up your opponent, walk across the cage with them, and slam him down like a bag of fertilizer. Oh, you win. Ten eight round. Yeah, you win right yeah. there. Doesn't he, matter what else. He would happens. probably give you that round four to two for your <laughs> takedown. Yeah. No. And see, hey, you get Chuck Liddell in there as a judge, and uh, you know he thinks all these dudes shooting in for takedowns are just trying to avoid the stand up game because they don't want to stand and bang. So yeah, that does come along with it. At the same time, though, it's like. How would you convince some of these ex-fighters that it is really worth their time to go and be judges? They don't really want to do that. You know, that, judging is such a thankless job. The, the only time we know your name is if you fuck up at it. And then we, then we bother to learn your name. Like, oh, Cecil Peoples, you son of a bitch. Otherwise, you know, if you're doing a good job, no one pays any attention to you. Yeah, no one's like, man, Glenn Trowbridge, he's yeah. such an awesome what a, judge. What a pro. Yeah, and I mean, it's... It's not like it pays well. Not, there's no like prestige about it. I, I mean, it's tough to understand why anybody would want to become a judge. I mean, thankfully, some people do. And I think that for a long time, it's starting to get better. But for a long time, it was just this old boys club of like old boxing judges. And, you know, we tell them what submissions are and, and what, what leg kicks are. And they're like, OK, I got it. Put me out there. Uh, and that's when responsible for some bad decisions. But ultimately, I mean, it's hard to convince good people who know what the hell they're doing to deal with all the, the politics and the, the bullshit just to get involved in this, because why? Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure what the fix is, honestly. I mean, I guess getting some fighters involved might be a step in the right direction. But like I said, I think that opens up a whole nother can of worms. It's just, uh, it, it, it's a tough question that you'd, you'd think it would be better. You know, as, as we all noted, we're recording this on Monday, the, the 19th anniversary of UFC one, you would think that, 
they would have got this shit down by now. But I mean, even the criteria for the judges is still so unbelievably bad that yeah, that it, you kind of need a top-down uh, reformation effort, I would think. Anyway, the third question this week comes from Trevor. He asks, from a purely selfish standpoint, isn't it better if there's only one MMA organization as opposed to having many of the top fighters scattered around a handful of organizations? If there's only one organization, we don't have to wait and wonder about fights that may or may not ever happen. Look how many guys are stuck in strike force that could potentially be viable contenders in the UFC. Imagine if there was a competing football league with the NFL and Tom Brady played in one league and Peyton Manning played in the other. Football fans would have missed out on so many great games. Granted, having only one organization isn't the best thing for the fighters, but like I said, isn't it the best option from a selfish standpoint? And I think Trevor kind of said it all right there at the end. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's, it may not be the best situation for the workers, but I think that he's right that for the most part, from the, from the point of view of, of the fans, it is a good thing that we have this like strong centralized force in the UFC to make sure that you, know, you don't get a, a very splintered sport like you have in boxing where it seems like Manny Pacquiao and, and, and Floyd Mayweather are never going to fight just because uh, competing promoters and, and, and whatnot. So, yeah, I think we do benefit from that, but there are also positives and negatives uh, from it, too. You know, just just having one organization control almost the whole the whole sport certainly has some pitfalls. Yeah. And there I think this is the direction we're heading. I mean, you mentioned the, how many guys locked down in strike force. Yeah. But, I mean, but that's coming to an end. Uh, so that's not going to be a real problem. What you see now in Bellator is not, you know, there's not like a whole lot of guys out of Bellator where we're all dying to see them fight their UFC counterpart. Somewhere you can kind of make a case that it would be interesting, but it's not like I feel like this sport is, is losing out by not being able to make those fights right now. I mean, it's, it effectively has one, you know, big league in the UFC because everybody wants to get to the UFC. Uh, even the guys who are in Bellator They'd like to be in the UFC. You don't think they get tired of having to explain to people who, who they meet on airplanes and shit all the time that, yeah, they, they do that UFC stuff, but they're not actually in the UFC, but it's not because they suck. You know, the good thing about having those other promotions, the World Series of Fightings or your Bellators, stuff like that, is that uh, it's something that you can do that where if the UFC just decides they, they don't like you, they don't like your style of fighting, or you piss them off or something and they fire you, which will happen from time to time, that, that you're not then blackballed from the sport entirely. You know, that's, and you know gives you a little bit of negotiating room, although I, I don't know if there's a whole lot like, hey, you better up my money or I'll go over to the World Series of, of Fighting and make you know, 10 grand to get kicked in the head by Tyrone Spong. I don't, I don't know if that's a great negotiating ploy right now. But, I mean, it is good to have some of that stuff around. I don't feel, though, like we're really suffering from it. Back in the pride days, maybe. But now, I think we're fine. Last question this week comes from George. Why do fighters find it necessary to wear so many layers when weighing in or walking out to the fight? I understand you have to rep your sponsors and you need to warm up. But seriously, hat, hoodie, long sleeve shirt, sweatpants, socks, and shoes. You know it's all coming off, bro. Sandals and a tank top. And then George adds, parenthetically, no homo. So... Well, George is a little hypersensitive if he thought that we were going to make assumptions about his sexuality just because he wanted to see shorts and a tank top. But you know, you know who is the worst about this? The absolute worst, especially on weigh-in day? Hmm. The Diaz brothers. They oh, yeah. The Those dudes. About yeah, they, they're they still come out, out in their jeans. Yeah, they wear their jeans, jeans out there. And a sweatshirt and like work boots. And, you know, they're just, it's going to take them forever because they're going to they got to take it off their, their their boots, you know, their their jeans, like with a belt on and everything kind of folded up. 
And then they, they got to get up there and mean mug. But then, you know, they're not going to go mean mug the dude in their underwear. So then they got to put their, their jeans back on and, and get their work boots back on and everything. And it takes forever. I, I'm, I'm with Trevor on this one. Yeah, why do you think that is? Do you think that the Diaz brothers are just sort of like morally opposed in a tough guy way to have like having like warm up outfits. Yeah. <laughs> I think that like the Diaz yeah. brothers aren't going to wear no tracksuit yeah, out there. No, they're not wearing no tracksuit, no, no goddamn sandals. No, man. They, they might need to go out to, to a job site after this or something. <laughs> you don't know. Oh yeah. I hope that they're not drug testing on the old job site. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, listener mail for this week. If you have questions, comments, concerns for the podcast in future weeks, you can get in touch with us by going to the website and clicking the handy link at the top of the page that says, email the podcast that will get you in touch with us as for right now though we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one and that starts right now round one well ben uh i would say probably the 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 most surprising and memorable moment of uh UFC Macau. Macau occurred in the in the main event when a forty year old Kung Lee knocked a I believe thirty eight year old Rich yeah, Franklin thirty eight uh, out cold with a right hook. Uh, I got up at, at at six o'clock in the morning and came over here to be here at seven and we watched these fights. Uh, the fuck, man. <laughs> the fuck indeed. I mean, you know, uh, I did not see it going that way. Oh, in the main uh, event? No way, man. And I, in fact, uh, was pretty sure that the odds were that they were going to go all five just because of, you know, the, what we've seen from both guys recently. I thought it was a, it was a pretty good chance that we we're in for a long one here. Not that I was not looking forward to that. I, I thought that this was a, a fun, fun little fight on paper. Um, but then, you know, Rich Franken goes out there, leaves his chin up in the air and gets stuck. And uh, Kung Lee lets, gets to go home and eat some pizzas early. Yeah, see, I thought we might have been looking at a Kung Lee, Scott Smith type situation where Kung Lee uh, d- does his spinning shit for a couple rounds, ends up getting tired out, uh, and then and then gets stopped by Franklin maybe in the second or third round. Especially since, uh, as we talked about last week, Kung Lee uh, talked about how he was coming in with a foot injury. I thought maybe that would have impaired some of his, his cardio efforts, such as they were. Uh, but I guess, yeah, obviously that didn't happen. Now, um what exactly that means, I don't think anyone is really sure, if anything. We talked about uh, last week or maybe the week before this being just a fun fight. I suppose it means that Kung Lee is, is going to fight at least one more time, uh, maybe. I, I don't know. If I were him, I would think this might be a good time to, uh, to bid adieu, but that you know, doesn't seem to be how those guys think about this kind of thing. So. It's weird. When I was talking to him before this fight and talking to him before – you know, he's one of those guys who will throw out that like fighter cliche about how he's taking it one fight at a time and not thinking about the future. He really seems to be like almost physically incapable of thinking about the future because anytime you ask him about what he is planning to do, uh, either he has some ideas and he just refuses to tell you, or he he just can't even bring himself to imagine a, a future that is different from the present moment. Uh, because you know, even after this fight, people are asking him, "Okay, where does this leave you? What now?" And he's kind of like, "I don't know. I'm gonna go eat some pizzas, uh, and then maybe take some time off and hang out with my family." I mean, one thing: you're 40 years old as a pro fighter. You don't have that much time to take off if you really think that you're still gonna be doing this for a long time in the future. It's also like you should have some your sights set on something. Either like you know, I want to get a new contract and, and up my money. 
or you know maybe one big shot one big run for a title or i want to fight this one guy because otherwise it's just kind of like yeah i guess i'm just hanging around because i don't know what else to do otherwise i'd just be at home so uh you know and then my wife would want me to clean out the garage so i guess i'm just going to keep this pro fighting thing going until they make me leave i don't it's kind of weird yeah well i would say the inability concept to conceptualize the future could be considered a fairly far-flung personality trait in the world of the professional fighter. I'm not sure very many of these guys at all are are making long-term plans, and that might be one of the reasons why they're perfectly okay with getting punched in the head uh, as as a requirement like, of their job. Like Chris Levin said, that they're like they're like strippers. No one's working their way through college. Yeah, I, I mean uh, that might be the hard truth of the situation. Um, and as for what the future holds for Kung Lee, I think you're right. Uh, you know, that guy, he doesn't really have the luxury of, of taking too long to decide. And, and frankly, for several fights now has been the kind of guy that has been kind of tiptoeing around the idea that, that he was probably going to walk away to go do movies or, or, or some such thing. So in terms of like any kind of cohesive storyline moving forward, I'm not sure that we got anything at all out of Rich Franklin versus Kong Lee, but at least it was interesting to watch, which sort of... Uh, put it at odds with the co-main event where Tiago Silva ended up uh, tapping out Stanislav Nedkov with one of those taps where it was kind of like when the guy tapped, you could just imagine him saying, oh, finally, you know, <laughs> like, oh, I was, I was done fighting five minutes ago. I don't know about this other guy. Um, Again, though, like that's like, that's got to be the co-main event. Why do we always have to have a co-main event? Why yeah, can't it just it doesn't be, exist. This was co-main the, event doesn't exist. This was the fight before the main event. This, you know, after this one, then we're going to do the main. You don't have to give it a name. Thiago Silva versus Stanislav Nedkov. You know, just the fight that happens right before the main event. That's I don't all know, man. Maybe, you know, 15 years from now, Stanislav Nedkov is going to be uh, in a bar somewhere drinking away his sorrows. And he'll be like, oh, that night we were the co-main event, I tell you. <laughs> the co-main event. No, yeah. I, d- I doubt it. That probably That probably won't happen. Let's talk about watching this show at 7 o'clock in the morning. I enjoyed that. Did you really? Yeah. You thought there was a good way to get your weekend started? Yes. Yes, I did. Uh, if I had to do it every weekend there was a fight, I would get annoyed with it very quickly. But uh, every once in a while, sure. That's fun. That's a, and especially with a one like this where it's on you know, pre-cable TV. It's not, it already doesn't feel like super important doesn't feel like a Saturday night main event kind of deal already. So, yeah, I'll, I'll get up at 7 a.m., watch it, be done by, by 10 a.m. Mountain Standard Time, one true time zone. Uh, then I'll go about my day. I enjoyed that. See, to me, it just felt like another symptom of my continuing befuddlement over what the hell is going on in this sport in general uh, from a an administrative and planning standpoint where – you know, just being up at seven o'clock in the morning and, and having to watch these fights just made me wonder, just like, when, what are we like? What, wh- why are we having this event wow. where I don't even know if anyone in China watched it? It seems like from the reports we've gotten after the fact, uh, maybe not. <laughs> it seems like you're dealing with some real gargantuan dilemmas. Well, the gargantuan questions in life here. Perfectly acceptable pronunciation for that word, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it is one of those things where you're like, who knows what the the actual perception of this stuff was in China or what the UFC, the extent of the UFC's future plans in China are. Uh, it, it is like, 
when the UFC holds like a, a fuel TV card of there where, you know, you got to put up enough guys to get people to show up, but you don't want to spend your, you know, your, your best dudes out there on fuel TV. So it's already kind of like a balancing act. And it seems like if you look at as far as like how popular the, the events are on the ground where they are, the fuel TV stuff seems to do pretty well internationally. Um, because if you go to a market where they're just happy to have the UFC there, like Stockholm, where they were, uh, they had a, the UFC on Fuel TV event that was known locally as UFC Sweden, uh, and they were super into it and were treating it like it was a big time pay per view. Um, and then you have this one going to China, where uh, another place where they've never been before. Uh, you kind of get the the best of both worlds from the UFC's perspective because the people who are there are just glad to see you, not really too concerned with who's on the card, uh, and the people watching at home or not watching at home, yeah, sure, they'll see it. They'll check it out. I mean, Fuel TV doesn't even, you know, broadcast in those countries where they're going to hold the event, so they don't even send any people over there. Uh, no, none of like the Fuel like employees or other, than, you know, the announcers and stuff are even going over there to these places. So, why not? I mean, that, that seems to be the model that they've picked out for it right now. You know, that's what the, the Fuel TV stuff can do to be successful. The FX shows are somewhere in the middle, and then now they seem to be coming around to the idea that the Fox shows need to be loaded up a little bit more. I think they're moving in the right direction there. Yeah, but, I mean, just from a fan standpoint, from the standpoint of a guy who consumes the product, I still feel like this entire new model that they just came up with this year, post the Fox deal, uh, feels like it spreads the product way too thin. And I still feel like, at least publicly from the UFC brass, there's this like total unwillingness to acknowledge that they cannot just continue to produce more and more content. Yeah. Like the feeling I get from them is that they feel like they can continue to add content indefinitely on and on into infinity. And it, <laughs> it will be, it will go like gangbusters. Everyone will just love the shit out of it. Yeah. And to me, I was just thinking about it this week after we watched this UFC Macau. Macau. Uh, that, uh, you know, before this year, a couple of years ago, there were, there were only two tiers of UFC live, live programming, really. You had, the, you had your uh, uh, pay-per-views and you had shows on Spike TV. Now there are four. You know, you have UFC pay-per-views, you have Fox shows, you have FX shows, and you have shows on Fuel TV. And I think that that... And then you got your Facebook prelims. Yeah, then you got your Facebook... Well, that's the other thing. I was looking at at uh, UFC 154 this weekend, and the goddamn Facebook prelims start four fucking hours before the, before the pay-per-view. They're going to do four hours of prelims that you can watch if you want to. And it's just like this notion that... Are they really? Yeah, they start at 6 Eastern, and then the pay-per-view starts at 10. Wow. It's just this notion that they can just continue to, 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 to make everything bigger. Just grow the product, offer more and more and more, and yeah, everyone tough will franchise just, on every continent. Everyone will just love it. I, I, it's it's strange to me, man, because to me, as a guy, you know, when I compare it to how it felt watching the UFC four or five years ago, it just feels like the talent and the product is spread so unbelievably thin right now. I mean, between right now, today, and the end of this year, the UFC is going to do five shows, just between now and New Year's. Yeah, I mean, I guess the problem is. Uh, I mean, how many good fighters, how many UFC caliber fighters can there really be when the sport itself is still so young? Yeah, that's another I mean, you can solid add weight point. Classes. Because I think, and one of the things that, that makes the UFC feel special is that it's supposed to feel like this exclusive group. Like you, only the best of the best fights in the UFC. And now they have like 400 guys under contract. 
So it starts to make the whole it starts the my perception anyway as a fan is that it starts to make the whole thing feel less exclusive and therefore less big time kind of. Yeah. You you want to see uh you know a sign put up on the wall that says no scrubs allowed. Kick some of these guys out to to Bellator. Uh have them have them fighting in a barn somewhere in South Dakota. That's what you're saying. Well, I would be totally into the idea of a fight in a barn in South Dakota. Let's but I'm, I mean, Let's I'm just saying, right like, uh, how much awesomer would the shows be if in, between now and the end of the year there was only three instead of five? Like, yeah. Can you even name? So th- this weekend, UFC 154, we got Carlos Conduit and George St. Pierre in the main event. The co-main, which doesn't exist, is Martin Campman and Johnny Hendricks. What are the other three fights on the pay-per-view? Well, I'm looking at the, the fight card so right now on the computer screen, so I have it. But, uh, you know, you make a good point. I feel like maybe this is better saved for our later discussion on UFC 154. We were talking about Macau here, so maybe we, we got a little bit of ahead of ourselves. Um, but personally, I'm not, you're not going to hear me complain about getting up at 7 a.m. on a Saturday, you know, watching some fights, some of them good, some of them not so great, uh, and then moving on with my day. I'm... I'm just not, I refuse to complain about that. To me, it's like I didn't even remember what happened. I was still asleep, I think, for the first three or four fights. Well, I, you know, maybe you need to look at getting into bed at a decent hour. Yeah, staying up too late. Yeah. Partying. My crazy rock star lifestyle, partying, just catches up with me, man. Yeah. Distractions. It does. It's the thing about hosting a successful podcast. It's all the distractions. <laughs> yeah, people don't realize that. I mean, I, I watch you every day, and I'm like, man, Chad's not going to last long at this rate. Candle's just burning twice as bright right now, man. <laughs> twice as bright. Anyway, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? The part of the show that I feel is the most self-explanatory. Uh, and then we'll get started with, with round number two. Ben, what, what this week is your Are You Fucking Kidding Me? As I'm sure our listeners have heard by now, uh, Strike Force heavyweight Daniel Cormier was finally given an opponent uh, as we wrap up this whole crazy Strike Force experiment. His opponent... At one point was Frank Mir. We were all pretty excited about that. Uh, then Frank Mir got injured. And now we've apparently moved down the food chain to heavyweight Dion Starring or Staring. I don't know. I'm not sure how you pronounce this. That's not easy to pronounce people's names, is it? No, so no you, it's not. You sit over there in your co-host chair and you just think it's all okay. apple pie and fun and games. And then you have to pronounce Dion Staring's name. And well, let's, call him, let's call him Dion S. Yeah. Uh, Dutch heavyweight. Uh, who, you know, clearly brought on just because we needed a a warm body for Daniel Cormier to pound on. Maybe you couldn't find that many guys willing to take this opportunity. But to me, it just seems like a terrible idea because no one knows who this guy is or cares. Um, God forbid he goes out there and and throws one haymaker and knocks Daniel Cormier out. Real problem on your hands. Um, Plus, if Daniel Cormier just absolutely throttles him, nobody's going to be impressed. It's just a weird fight out of nowhere. Uh, I mean, I understand there's got to be some some difficulty in getting someone to agree to fight Daniel Cormier in in Strikeforce's last gasp, but Dion S., are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? My are you fucking kidding me, I, I don't even know who it goes out to because the whole situation is just so unbelievable that Bellator signed this guy, Dan McGuane, to fight on an undercard fight coming up at, at Bellator 81. Uh, and it, 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 as we got closer to the event, it turned out that this was a guy who had been convicted of manslaughter uh, for allegedly, well, I guess not allegedly, he's convicted, uh, beating a guy to death with his brother a few years ago. And uh, after a lengthy 
court battle ended up doing some prison time uh and then once that news sort of broke out uh there was a a a surge of 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 popular opinion that this shouldn't happen and now that they've pulled him off the card and the poor son of a bitch who was supposed to fight him doesn't have an opponent now and 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 the whole it just makes me wonder like man 2012 you're running a big time mma show how the fuck does this happen like, who hasn't who hasn't beat somebody to death with their twin brother? Who and who and we've all been young and crazy and beat somebody to death in the streets with our twin brother, right? And then who later hasn't signed that guy to fight for their MMA promotion? And be yeah. like, ah, man, no one will notice. Like, yeah. It won't be a big deal. It'll be fine. Yeah, Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Anyway, that's are you fucking kidding me for this week? We'll be right back with round number two. That starts right now. And so, Ben, the grand experiment that was Strike Force under the Zufa banner, apparently, reportedly, according to TMZ, those mavens of modern professional journalism, will come to an end on, on January 12th of next year with their last show. Uh, the card was announced this week, and notable, I think, by her absence was Ronda Rousey, who uh, TMZ also contends has already signed with the UFC and and so as we talked about last week on the podcast it seems like she will be uh making her her octagon debut sometime in 2013 and uh and strike force will sort of be swept away into the same uh dark corner of the sport that affliction and and all the other pretenders to the throne eventually go to um it's about goddamn time it right? is thank god you know you just it's weird too because You've got to think for most of for the top tier of the Strike Force fighters, they're all just like, all right, finally. And know though that there's going to be that middle ground of Strike Force fighters who are like, so wait, does this mean I'm going to the UFC or does this mean I got to look for a new job? Yeah. Um, you would think, since we just talked about how the UFC has so many damn fighters under contract because it needs them to run so many events, you would think that the UFC would need all the fighters it can get. Um, but who knows? Who knows if we're maybe we're gonna have uh, you know some form of auditions, uh, see who gets in, who doesn't. Um, but uh, the guys like the Gilbert Melendezes, the Luke Rockholds, especially the Daniel Cormiers. Yeah, good I news mean, for them. Yeah, real good news and good news for us because it's, it was getting to the point, and maybe had even passed the point where it just seemed unfucking conscionable what they were doing to these fighters' careers. Uh, they don't have a whole lot of time to to make money in their athletic prime, and you're just wasting their time. And not letting them earn a living. I mean, that's just bullshit. It's about time for this thing to be over. Um, and hey, if the UFC is really serious about making a women's division and not just you know having Ronda Rousey come and hang out, then I'm all for that too. I, I still question that part of it though. Yeah, we can talk about that in a minute because I still think that there is some reason to uh, to have questions and to to, to suspect that. Well, no, maybe not to suspect, but to just be curious how this thing is going to look. When uh, when when the, the the women's division finally debuts in the UFC, um, I, I like you said, I guess you know this this has to be greeted as good news for guys who uh, who who are of the upper upper echelon of Strike Force. Uh, if I'm Nate Marquardt, I guess I better win my 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 last fight. I don't know. It seems like he he's a guy who who could be a little bit nervous just because of how his exit from the UFC went. But I think for guys like Luke Rockhold and Daniel Cormier, it'll end up you know, being the, the best possible outcome. I mean, uh, if anything, I would think Marquardt would feel more comfortable now because 
it seems like the testosterone thing, the UFC has only gotten more comfortable with it. That's I mean, true. Look That's around true. At, at how things have gone with other fighters who are on it. Uh, then he went out there. He, he looked really good beating Tyron Woodley. So uh, I, I think that he would feel like, you know, this could have gone way worse for him career-wise uh, if he had gotten locked down somewhere else maybe. Uh, yeah. Maybe so, he did do- dodge a bullet because when he was revealed to be on testosterone, he sort of said that it was cheating. Yeah. Like they Yeah. Dana I remember White somebody was disgusted with him. Yeah, somebody fact, asked Dana White if, if he thought he was cheating and Dana White said something like, What do you think? Or yeah. something like that. Now, not so much. Well And Mark Wart's off the stuff, according to him. He's which and that's, he's doing some other stuff now. That's, he says. That is still the the most damning part of it to me is that um if you had if you had a legitimate testosterone issue, you would still have it. If you if you had it so that it was that you absolutely needed testosterone in order to compete on a level playing field, which should be the only reason that you would get an exemption, then it would be unsafe, physically and me- medically unsafe for you to compete without it. Um, so competing without it now just says that it was bullshit to begin with, and it's probably bullshit to begin with for pretty much everybody uh, in MMA who is on it. Yeah, he's fine. He found some other stuff to do. It's doesn't want to talk Drink about some, it. Some grapefruit juice in the morning. And- yeah, some kind of tea. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, what 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 do you think is going to be your lasting memory of Strike Force? Like when I say Strike Force, what 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 is going to come to your mind a year from now, two years from now? You know, I hope that I hope that I'm able to separate it in in my memory between the pre Zufa Strike Force when it was still trying to be like a real uh, second choice MMA promotion and the post Zufa buyout when it just got sadder and sadder toward the end where we all just wanted to put a pillow over its face and, and suffocate it and just end, end the torture. Uh, I hope I'm able to, to make that switch in my mind because I can remember going to the events beforehand and it was like Strike Force would never do everything exactly. You know, they weren't the well-oiled machine that the UFC was. You'd see some stuff that you where you'd think, well, they really should have thought that one through. Like when Brett Rogers was forced to walk uh, across the floor um, through a, a crowded, chaotic uh, mass of humanity trying to get out the building after Alistair Overeem beat his ass. And you're like, well, it really seems like they should have had somebody help that guy out there. It's kind of a, kind of sad to have to watch that guy walk out there. Um, but then, you know, great strike force moments like when uh, Fabricio Verdum beat Fedor. And it was just shocking and it felt like something huge that had happened. I mean... It has those those kind of ups and downs. I'm hope I'm able to remember those and not just the point when, uh, you know, Showtime and the UFC were bickering over it and screwing guys' career in the, in the process. For me, I think I'm always going to first think about the brawl in Nashville. You would we'll close out you the just CBS would. broadcast. Uh, Jason Mayhem Miller just getting rat packed by the scrap pack <laughs> in the in, in the cage. Sometimes uh, these things happen in a Sometimes these things do happen, Gus. Uh, but but yeah, I think you're right. I think you make a valid point. It it, it would probably be right and proper for us to attempt to remember Strike Force and in whatever small measure of glory it once was able to occupy, was once able able to achieve, and 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 the Verdum victory over over Fedor is probably probably the big one. Um, well, let's, but, but let's also, I mean, let's not re- forget what Strike Force did for women's MMA. Oh, for uh, sure, yeah. And that gets us to the, the Ronda Rousey stuff. I mean, the Ronda Rousey Misha Tate fight that that one felt like a big event, um, felt like like something that really mattered, and definitely propelled Ronda Rousey to to new levels of stardom. 
um, and got the UFC interested. Uh, Dana White seems very interested in Ronda Rousey. Yeah, let's read this recent quote from Dana, uh, which is one of the reasons that I think we have to be to be curious about what we're gonna see when the when the UFC finally ushers in the the era of the women's division. This is him in, in Las Vegas talking to a group of reporters recently. He says of Ronda Rousey, she's a fucking unique individual. She's like a Diaz brother. She really is. Inside like a fucking dude trapped in this beautiful <laughs> man. I cannot Come read on. it. I cannot read it. Come on, no. Okay. Do do your voice. That that's not that that voice is not anywhere near creepy enough for this quote. All right. Let's hear it. Let's see here. Where where was it? Okay. She's a fucking unique individual. She's like a Diaz brother. She really is inside this fucking dude trapped in this beautiful body. Wow, you sound like a like a truck stop waitress. It's awesome. So we've talked before about how it seems kind of like the UFC wants to be in the Ronda Rousey business uh, yes. rather than in the female MMA business. And I feel like this quote kind of brings that to the forefront in that are the guys running this sport in the in the getting into the female MMA business for the right reasons. Are they getting into it with respect for these people as fighters and as athletes, or are they getting into it because they have a commodity who is like a dude trapped in a beautiful fucking body? A fucking unique individual. I think that there's some cause for con- some concern there. Don't don't you like that that uh, uh, that we could just have kind of a grease fire on our hands if something <laughs> if something bad happens to Ronda Rousey or or you know she loses a fight and and, and maybe they're not. Uh, I mean, I guess at this point they have one female fighter under contract. Right? Yeah, so. well, and we don't even know for sure that she really has a contract yet. It just seems like that's where it's it's headed. But, yeah, this has been the question for me since we first heard Dana White softening his stance on women's MMA because his objection to it before was that uh, there's not enough of a division, um, which if that was your objection a year ago, that should still be your objection now because nothing has really changed in that regard. Uh, you know, if it's that... Also, I mean, it's kind of disturbing if Dana White's ideal woman is... Like a fucking dude trapped in this beautiful fucking body. Yeah, I would a feel weird. a lot more comfortable if we just maybe didn't talk about that aspect of, of this particular quote. <laughs> How can we not talk about this? <laughs> I don't know, man. It's you know it bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, what if you bring in, you find a way to do Ronda Rousey and Cyborg, and Cyborg just beats the hell out of her? Uh, are you still interested in women's MMA as as a whole? Are you interested in the other weight classes? Or is it just we've got to find a way to get Ronda Rousey in there? Because yeah, that I mean, to me is the I big question. I think you have to be, right? You can't. Once, hope. once they start the wheels in motion, and even if uh, even if Rousey loses, you have to keep going with the female division because if you don't, then you're just elite XC, right? Yeah. And you've crossed a you've crossed a line of of some kind of like trust or something with the with the fans. You know, they've that's that's the kind of thing that they've that they've never really done before. And I'm not I'm not. I'm not sure what to expect, really. I, I know that he, I, I have this idea that that the, the the a female division could be a really good, you know, um, a marketing thing for the UFC, a really good commodity, a, a very popular uh, attraction, um, maybe even more so than 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 what they we've seen from the flyweights and bantamweights and featherweights, which I, I think are have had some trouble connecting with the fan base. I think that the UFC probably somewhat rightly knows that that interest could be even higher in a female division, and hopefully they're serious about that. It's not just a thing where they want to put Ronda Rousey on the cover of magazines and take Ronda Rousey to the Sons of Anarchy uh, premiere. 
but I mean, I guess only time will tell. As far as we know now from a couple of different sources, it sounds like the least surprising news of the year is going to be that Ronda Rousey is going to be the first female champion in the UFC sometime in, in 2013. To me, the thing that will really tell us what the UFC's intentions are with women's MMA uh, will be whether they add other weight classes, not just 135 pounds. Um, because it could add, even if you add other 135-pound fighters, just to see as like who can be, who can be next to be Ronda Bate, um, because you realize you can't, you know, one fighter does not make a, a fight that anybody wants to watch. You, you need to build up somebody for her to face. Uh, but if, if they just stick with that one weight class, then you're not really doing different. You're doing even worse than Strikeforce did at it. You know, the, you've got to cultivate those other weight classes, you know, 125 pounds and below. That's where there's a lot more talent, a, a lot more fighters, uh, and, you know, interesting fight. So if they really want to be in that business, they'll look at more than one weight class. Uh, if they just want to find a way to get Ronda Rousey on TV, they won't. I think that's going to tell us. That's going to be the indicator. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. This is either really good or really bad news for Invicta, too, because it, I guess it remains to be seen if they can become sort of a feeder organization or if they're going to constantly be existing in this in this kind of uh, middle area, the, the, this sort of limbo where, uh, you know, as soon as you create a popular star they're just going to get snapped up by the ufc or i don't i mean i think the ufc needs to have an invicta around because there's no way that the ufc is going to even if it does put on women's mma fights in more than one weight class there's no way that it's going to do enough of them to keep the 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 female fighters as active as they need to and to find new talent and to to separate uh you know the the cream from the 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 cream of the crop there they because they you know you can say hey we you know we want to have uh, two or three 135 pound fights a year, you know, maybe one every other fight card or something, whatever you want to do. Um, but how are you going to find out, you know, who, who are the good up and coming fighters at that weight? How are you going to keep them busy enough so that they, they are not just sitting around in their gyms all year waiting for you to give them one fight a year. They can't live off of that. Uh, so I think the UFC wants to have an Invicta around to help it in that regard. Yeah. Hopefully that, that turns out to be the case. Um, as for now, though, that, that probably wraps up our discussion of, of the demise of Strikeforce and the, the futures of Ronda Rousey in the UFC. Fucking uh, unique individual. She is just a fucking unique individual with a beautiful body. And just this fucking dude trapped in there. Oh, my God. Somebody feed oh, that dude. God. All right. That's, that's enough. <laughs> We're going to go ahead and get started with round three, which starts right now. Round three. Chad, this weekend in Montreal, the return of UFC welterweight champion George St. Pierre as he takes on one Carlos Conduit. It is a, it's been a long time coming. GSP has been out for more than a year and a half. Now, finally, he's coming back. Uh, what kind of reception do you think GSP is coming back to uh, from MMA fans in general? Because it seems like when he left, he left on kind of a, a downer note. People start him for playing it safe and, and decision wins uh and that seemed like maybe he was gone enough that we started to miss gsp and started to think that maybe we had taken him for granted while we had him around now he's coming back uh what say you for for the prospects of gsp's return here 
Yeah, I mean, you obviously expect him to get a huge ovation in Montreal, which is 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 certainly serendipitous timing and and uh, scheduling by the UFC. Um, in in terms of of how he's being received by the fans at large, it seems a little strange. I I do think you're right. I think that uh, you know uh, t- towards the end of of his well, I guess not the end of his tenure, but but right there prior to the injury, he had started to take more and more flack for being boring and being very conservative and and kind of controlling all of his opponents with with takedowns in his wrestling game. Um, and I think that, that a lot of that is still out there. And in a weird way, I feel like even though this is a fight that I'm really interested to see, um, and I think that it, it has the potential to be a really compelling and, and, and exciting fight to watch, I don't feel like there is a ton of uh, expectation. It just doesn't feel as electric or something, uh, you know, it, in the fan base, it, it doesn't feel as as big of an event or as like eagerly anticipated as an event or a fight as you might expect. How much of that do you think is because he is facing Carlos Conduit and not Nick Diaz? Well, a lot. Obviously, Nick Diaz inspires s- sort of a rabid, like the strain of 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 rabidness, rabidity. Well, how, I don't know, rabidness. The str- like the amount gargantuan. Of- yeah, gargantuan. Yes, there's nothing wrong with that pronunciation of that word. Uh, he Nick Diaz inspires an allegiance from his fans that 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 borders on rabid. It's 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 really kind of strange. It is in a lot of ways. But I and I I do think that a GSP Diaz fight would would create a lot more interest than this fight. And I think maybe part of the problem is that I really believe that Condit or Conduit and and GSP are both super likable guys and they both they're both a couple of my favorite guys in the sport but they're not i mean they're just really steady professionals they're not going to say anything outlandish they're not going to create any undue headlines you know and you can kind of feel that in the primetime specials i don't know if you've seen them yeah, but I uh have. it you know they they're just so professional and and, and kind of level headed that it's it's hard to really make any compelling TV out of those guys, I've felt. Yeah, and I think we were talking when we were watching the commercials over and over again for this fight during the UFC on Fuel broadcast uh, about how the, the UFC seems to be really pushing that storyline that, man, that knee injury to GSP almost ruined his career, all, almost ended the yeah, whole he thing thought about there. walking away. No, yeah. he didn't. <laughs> well, yeah, they are acting like, you know, like a torn ACL or something that, that just nobody comes back from when in fact almost everybody who's a pro athlete comes back from it. Yeah. The much of the, I believe that much of the hand wringing over George St. Pierre's uh, knee injury is probably going to be, you know, much ado about nothing. Uh, at least physically. I, I think that, you know, if St. Pierre is feeling any effects when he gets in there, it's going to be uh, psychologically because a lot of the guys who, who suffer that injury say that it takes a really long time to be able to trust your body in the same way that you did before. And that really is the, is the part that slows you down in competition. Not, not, you know, you can do all of the same things that you used to be able to do physically. It's just that in your mind, you don't know if you, if you, if you trust the knee to be able to take the, the strain and the punishment. So well, I would I mean, say there's, there's also the issue of just, you know, ring rust after being out. Sure. That long. I was going to, I would say on one hand, I think that like a lot of the concern uh, over the injury is trumped up. On the other hand, I think, you know, if you're Carlos Condit and you have to fight George St. Pierre, now is probably a pretty good time to do it because yeah. of the layoff and the and the injury and the rehab. And, and uh, so that's one of the reasons why I feel like this could turn out to be a fairly competitive fight. Well, the thing I wonder is, on one hand, you got Carlos Condit, who took a bunch of shit for the way he won over Nick Diaz, you know, perceived to be playing it safe and, and fighting to win the decision there. Uh, and 
then you got George St. Pierre, who has been taking shit for winning a bunch of decisions and has acknowledged that that some of that criticism has has some basis to it and that he needs to be a little more aggressive and a little more opportunistic about finishing guys. It makes me wonder if they will, in fact, once they get in there, be more motivated to, to take more chances, more risks, to go out there and, and finish. Um, or if once you get in there, it's still, hey, let's just win this fight however we can and get out of here uh, for either guy. Yeah, I would be really surprised if St. Pierre came out with a game plan other than the one we've seen from him in, in a lot of recent fights, Again, especially against Carlos Condit, a guy who, you know, his main thing is his kickboxing and a guy that we know is, is pretty dangerous on the feet. I'm sure that, well, I'm not sure, but I anticipate that St. Pierre will come out and, and try to take him down. So I think that a lot of the fight is probably going to depend on, on Condit's ability to stop the takedown, um, which obviously we haven't really seen anybody be able to do in in. in GSP's recent appearances um, and so, so in, in, in my mind that's one of the reasons why it'll be interesting to see how this plays out because you know will St. Pierre be able to, to to confidently do all of the things that he's been able to do in in, in his more recent fights or or will Condit be able to uh, keep his feet and, and sort of try to work his game I wouldn't expect that Condit would would have a game plan similar to the Diaz fight I don't think I just think Diaz and, and St. Pierre are so different stylistically that, uh, you know, the Diaz fight, I think, was a kind of a one-time thing for Condit, who has always kind of been an exciting guy in the past. Yeah. And I think that it was a smart game plan for him to try to use Diaz's aggressiveness and, and his kind of like high-octane, high-volume punching uh, offense against him himself, against you know, Diaz. One of the things that I wonder about, we talk about, you know, George St. Pierre, uh you know, playing it safe in the cage, and as you said, not the guy who's going to go out and say any crazy shit beforehand uh, to get people fired up. Uh, I did an article for USA Today uh, this week. USA Today is uh, putting, we're doing a special uh, section all about UFC 154, uh, and the main story in there, or one of the main stories, is about uh, kind of the business of George St. Pierre uh, and how well he is doing with sponsorships uh, outside of the cage. And as I learned when I was researching it, really fucking well is the answer. Uh, he is making a ton of money, way more than I would have guessed he was making. Uh, in fact, according to the people I talked to, he's, he's got about 14 different endorsement deals right now. Um, he's got Coca-Cola, their energy drink. Uh, Google, with their Nexus mobile device stuff. He's got a bunch of big stuff like that. Bacardi, he just had a deal with Bacardi recently. Um, and then he's got, you know, the Hayabusa and the, you know, a poker site and stuff like that. But he's got 14 or so different uh, endorsement deals, all of which, according to what I'm told, pay him somewhere in the six-figure range each. Wow. Also told that if, if you total up his past and present outside of the cage sponsorship money, you're looking at eight figures. Wow. Eight figures. That's, huh. that's what he's made just not even fighting. I mean, and it seems to me like one of the things I kept hearing when I was talking to, to his agents, talking to sponsors, and talking to, uh, to different people about it, even talked to Dana White about it, the thing that all the, the people said that makes him so attractive to sponsors is not just that he's a good fighter and he's a good-looking guy, um, but that he's safe. He's not going to you know, embarrass you. He's not going to go get a DUI. He's, he's not going to any, say anything stupid. Uh, he's a safe guy to have as your spokesman if you want to have a, a professional cage fighter. Uh, and a lot of these brands who weren't sure they wanted to have a professional cage fighter, and they got talked into it because it's George. And it seems like it's a little bit of that, the virtues of his faults kind of thing. 
that makes him a really lucrative and good spokesman uh because you know he's he's a safe guy a guy who's dependable and then in when he gets in the fight he's also safe and dependable in an awesome way i mean he's safe and dependable in winning um but then people kind of get sick of it you know it's kind of this thing where the, the same thing that is making him i mean if i have if i was george st pierre and i had to choose between you know a couple of people complaining about how i'm winning all the damn time and you know making this ton of money outside the cage I think he's been pretty smart about it. I can't really fault the guy there. Yeah, man. If you're making tens of millions of dollars, fuck the people on the internet. Like, who gives a shit? (laughs) He also was really adamant that he had never personally sent a tweet in his life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Have you ever seen his Twitter account? There's no way that's George St. Pierre. I I have seen his Twitter account. The thing was, though, at least from my perspective when I was doing the interview, we weren't talking about that. I don't know how... He just decided to let you know that? I guess. I don't know if he misunderstood the question or something. The next thing you know, he was talking about how he sees a bunch of guys on their phones texting and tweeting all the time, and he doesn't, he doesn't live his life virtually. He doesn't do that, and he's never sent one tweet in his life, and he was really adamant about letting you know that. It's like, okay, well, I don't it know. Sounds like, in a way, George St. Pierre and I agree on that, but... You, you, sent, you sent some tweets, my friend. No, I, I do, yeah, but I, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, did you have something? You looked like you were queuing no. something up there. You were, no. weren't going to read one of George St. Pierre's tweets that are not sent by George St. Pierre? <laughs> no. no. Better, better to just leave that one alone, I guess. Move on. That also sounds like George St. Pierre just saying, don't follow me. <laughs> just don't follow me. <laughs> you know, me. that's kind of what I was wondering is how it's the people who feel like they've made a real connection with George St. Pierre over social media. Uh, if they hear that, they're just kind of going to be like, okay, well, I guess, you know, whoever the PR person responsible for sending those tweets, and I feel like we really got, got a connection. We really got something in common. So if, here's my question about all of these sponsorship deals that George St. Pierre has. I know, you know, when I lived in New York in, in uh, 2007, 2008, George St. Pierre was, in fact, all over the subway, like in, in Gatorade commercials. There were giant pictures of George St. Pierre in those tiny shorts that he wears, kicking a bag. You love it. On all of the, I did love it, on all of the, on the walls of all of the, the like, subway terminals. Uh, but where is all this, like, where is the advertising, like, uh, that, that I, I don't know if I've ever seen George St. Pierre in, a, in like, a Coca-Cola energy drink advertisement or I've something. Is it, is it all in Canada, or, like, what are we... Uh, <coughs> What are we no, dealing with Actually, here? one of the things that uh, Dana White said that uh, did not make it into the article, and again, I encourage all the podcast listeners to go out, I believe it's on Friday, either Thursday or Friday, pick don't, up a copy of USA don't, Today. Don't do that. Uh, get, the, get the UFC 154 pullout. Jesus. See the article. God. Um, but one of the things that did not make it in there was Dana White was saying how he is kind of baffled that George St. Pierre is not a bigger star in Canada, that he seems like he is a bigger star elsewhere, uh, and that he's getting these kind of endorsement deals that are not that that they're going all over the place because i've seen his ads for the the energy drink and i've seen his ad for the haven't you seen the one where the google nexus thing where he fights the ninjas there's like and these like animated ninjas break into his apartment and he fights them no i'll send you the link it's it's kind of weird um but uh you know i i've seen some of that stuff around so but uh dana white was saying that he thinks you know to have a guy like this, a guy from Quebec and, and representing Canada really well, that he should be an absolute megastar in Canada. Um, and, you know, he's a pretty big star there with the MMA fans in Canada, uh, but that it, not more so than he is necessarily in the United States. But that's also one of the good things I think people like about him is that he's one of those rare uh, MMA fighters where he's a Canadian dude and he can fight American fighters in the U.S. and still be the crowd favorite there. 
you, know, not, you don't really hear a whole bunch of USA chants popping up against GSP there the way you do other guys. I was just kidding. Do pick up the USA Today yeah, you get UFC 154 four-page insert, yeah. which will be outside your hotel room door on Friday morning. Do pick that up, I guess. Uh, First copies on Chad. <laughs> uh, let's uh, do just saying stuff before we get out of here. Uh, as longtime listeners of the podcast know, just saying stuff is the part of the show where Ben and I both make a statement that we are then not asked to back up or defend or uh, follow up in any way because, you know, at the end of the day, we're just we're just saying stuff. Just saying. Um, ben, my just saying stuff this week is that uh, one of the Internet hackers who took down UFC.com last year uh, was sentenced this week. A fellow by the name of Cosmo the God pleaded guilty to multiple uh, felonies this week in exchange for six years of probation. One of the stipulations of which is that he stays off the Internet and GTFO internet. This is a quote from the MMA junkie. Another plug. There you go. For your employer uh, about his sentencing. It says he's required to get permission from his <laughs> parole officer to log on. Use must be use must be limited to education purposes and cannot be unsupervised. And he is required to hand over his login and password information and must disclose in writing his possession of any Internet capable devices. Now, I want to juxtapose that he can only go to like the Encyclopedia Britannica site or something. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) yes. He's only allowed to use the Internet for educational purposes, as we all are, as we all do. (laughs) But I want to juxtapose that with a quote from Wired magazine about what Cosmo the God, who was, was 15, by who the was way. 15 years old, was up to before they caught him. Cosmo the God, quote, took down a bevy of websites this year, including those for NASDAQ, CIA.gov, and UFC.com. Cosmo pioneered social engineering techniques that allowed him to gain access to user accounts at Amazon, PayPal, and a slew of other companies. He was arrested in June as part of a multi-state FBI sting. Yeah, government, you are not going to be able to keep that kid off the fucking internet. I'm <laughs> nor, just saying. Nor should you really. I mean, that, that, let's just try and redirect his internet genius into something positive, for Christ's sake. Yeah, I'm just certain that he won't find out a way to get on the internet without anybody knowing. <laughs> you know, educational purposes. For example, you know, you, you're, you're wondering how best to perform oral sex on a woman that's educational if you, if you go and you look that up, right? That's on the internet? We'll talk later. My just saying stuff. I'm just saying there's been a lot of talk leading up to UFC 154 that if George St. Pierre wins and retains his and unifies his, his welterweight title, that Anderson Silva might be on hand to, to challenge him publicly and in full view of the cameras, thus setting up a huge mega super fight in a stadium on the moon or something. I'm just saying, wouldn't it be awesome if... Before Anderson Silva can get in there, a certain someone from the 209 wearing jeans and work boots jumps up in there, gets in GSP's face, and tells him, don't be scared, homie. I'm just saying, it'd be awesome. Well, that's going to be the show for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week to wrap up UFC 154. I'm sure Ben will be over his dread disease at that point, and he'll be able to come back with his normal vim and vigor. As for now, that's it for us. We're done. We're through. We're out. Gargantuan. That's how you say it. Gargantuan. Gargantuan. No. Huge. Let's stick with that. <laughs> Huge. 
huge. <laughs> hey, do you think that uh, we could get maybe Cosmo the God to work on our, our website? That would be awesome. You could just make every website.